Good friends of Jackson Elias, an occasional podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Norwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we are talking about Robert Aikman's story, The Hospice. Hang on a minute, that ain't Lovecraft. Yeah. You're right. Yes, it isn't. What's going on? How how did this happen? Whose idea was this? I'm looking at you, Scott. Yeah, okay, but, but one of my dark secrets is that I do occasionally read writers who aren't Lovecraftian. And uh, Robert Aikman is on? is one of my favourite writers, but this isn't completely gratuitous. We'll get to our usual, uh, how we can use the ideas from this story in gaming at the end of it. And I think some of the outcomes might be quite surprising here. Me and Paul are both looking at each other non-convinced. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get into the story, what's everyone been up to? You know the doorbell rang today when I was talking to you on the phone, Scott? Yes. I didn't ever tell you who it was, did I? Okay. I answered the door, and there was an elderly gypsy lady peddling, hold- peddling her wares. Holding a monkey's paw. <laughs> yeah. Oh. What, Lucky Heather? It was Lace Doilies. Lace Doilies? Yes. Okay, that sounds a bit less gothic. Now, it was kind of... I engaged her in conversation for a while, and, as is traditional, she foresaw my future and, and told me a few things. Lady curse on you? No, but it was kind of entertaining because none of the things she said were anywhere near right. What, she actually really did this? Oh, yeah. Oh, bloody hell. I, I, I was about to have a go at you for stereotyping. No, no. <laughs> okay, let's have, a go at her. let's have a go at her for stereotyping instead. Um, so she was like, is it an, is it an aunt or an, or an uncle that you're particularly close to? No. No, because I haven't spoken to any of them for 40 years. There's somebody with a J... A J in their name. I can't think of them. (laughs) Who is it that's got a bad leg? No one I know! (laughs) You you if you don't fuck off. (laughs) So, uh, anyway, after, like, missing the spot every time, I I just kind of, you know, I bought a few... I am now the proud owner of three doilies. (laughs) But I thought there was supposed to be, you know, a, a long tradition and a skill of being able to do good cold readings like this. I mean, she she, she just has shit. She didn't have it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, lady who called at the door, but you were you were well out. I'm just liking the fact this could very easily be the start of a scenario. That could be a PC. It, that occurred failing every roll. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that could be very much like you know you've gone to the door to get some information. Yeah, I'll do a bit of cold reading as a way of getting in there. Double zero. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll sell them some lace doilies and piss off. <laughs> <laughs> These are not the cultists you're looking for. <laughs> Probably even sold them at less than she would have done to make a profit. Yeah. <laughs> no, I guarantee that wasn't the case. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I am a soft touch. All right, I admit it. So what you've been running at the club, Scott? I've been running an unknown armies campaign. Uh, yeah, first UA campaign I've run in. Well, I was about to say in a long time, except I didn't. I ran it at, at conception as well as a, a kind of short uh, uh, three session game there. Uh, it's the first time someone's you... run it at the club though in ages. 
And you're getting to play in it, Matt? Finally! For the first time in ages, I get to play UA for a long time. If anybody out there wants to run Unknown Armies, Matt will always volunteer as a player. I will find you. I will play in your game. <laughs> so how's it going, Matt? I, I I really like it. I got the, to give what I think is a good info dump at the end of last game, uh, at least from my perspective of what's going on, and then realised there was a little bit of a flaw in my in my reasoning. <laughs> but, but, it, but it was just fun watching the other players sitting there thinking, oh shit, if he's right, we're in real trouble. I love it when Matt gives, a, gives his interpretation of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm even right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I won't tell you how right you are yet, but... Mm-hmm. but, but I, haven't got, I realise I haven't got all the pieces of the puzzle. Oh, so. dear God, no. <laughs> how about you then, Matt? Well, mainly working on uh, revising the outline for Chapter 2 of A Poison Tree, the campaign we're working on for Pelgrane. Um, writing up a relatively complicated uh, murder mystery set in colonial America. When Matt says relatively complicated, <laughs> he means very complicated. Yes, yes. We, we, we've been through the notes twice. Matt's walked us through it, and I feel like I'm almost ready to run it. <laughs> no offence, Matt. <laughs> I thought 15 or 20 NPCs was fairly a uh, fairly conservative number. Yeah, 15 or 20 NPCs and no R, Matt. Jesus. <laughs> this, this, this is how you make Scott cry. <laughs> Mental note. <laughs> As said, tonight's episode will um, have us looking at Robert Aikman. So, we hand over to Scott. So, who is Robert Aikman? I guess Robert Aikman isn't actually that well known. I would say not. So, tell us about him, Scott. When I think of Robert Aikman, I think of that... um, I can't remember who said it, that that quote about the Velvet Underground a long time back, which was, you know, their their first album, when it came out, you know, something like, you know, 50 people bought it, but all of the people who bought it went out and started bands. Uh And uh, I think Robert Aikman is, in a lot of ways, sort of the literary answer to that, in that, you know, maybe not that many people initially read his stuff, but a lot of the people who did went out and wrote horror fiction. Yeah, Yeah, I was reading that um, article by Laird Barron about him today, and he was saying that if you're kind of starting out reading weird tales don't start with Robert Aikman. Yeah, he is quite a challenging writer. Very much a writer's writer as well is the way I've heard him described. Yeah, in fact, there's one particular quote which I love. Um... So now we've put the listeners off actually reading any of his work. (laughs) Yes, yeah, we'll we'll give over the next 40 minutes to discussing all the stuff we've just told you you don't want to talk, you don't want to read. Um, But no, there's a lovely quote which I think kind of sums up Aikman quite nicely from Neil Gaiman. Uh, which is, uh, reading Robert Aikman is like watching a magician work, and very often I'm not even sure what the trick was. All I know is that he did it beautifully. Yes, the key vanished, but I don't know if he was holding a key in the hand to begin with. Uh, Yeah, I mean, that that really does sum up Aikman for me. His stories are... they're, They're... not just ambiguous, uh, they are, in a lot of ways, the closest I can think of outside of you know, some surrealist and cut-up writing I've read to the experience of dreaming while awake. Yes, yeah, so the stories are, are full of things that narratively seem to make sense but don't necessarily tie in together. They hint at things that are happening that are never fully described. 
Uh, and in the end, you know, very few of his stories wrap up anything like neatly. Um, the, and the, the overall effect of these is that they are strange, uh, unsettling pieces of work. And Aikman himself didn't describe himself as a horror writer or even a writer of ghost stories. He described himself as a writer of strange stories. Mm. So they are very open to interpretation. The reader pretty much fills in a lot of the blanks or interprets it in the way they want to, yeah. which I imagine is going to be definitely part of the conversation we're going to have in a few minutes. Oh, <laughs> yes. But I mean, Aikman was born in 1914. Uh, there was the uh, sort of centenary celebration of his, his birth uh, last year. Uh, and as a result of that, a lot of the books of his, which have been out of print for a long time, uh, have started coming back into print. So this is actually quite a good time to get into Aikman. Uh, Faber Publishing put out paperback editions uh, last year of uh, not, not quite his whole collection. Tartarus Press put out some wonderful limited edition hardcovers, uh, which are just beautiful books. Mm -hmm. And they've covered not just uh, you know his entire run of short stories, but his two volumes of autobiography. Yeah, I think I'm missing the two autobiographies and then one of the collections of short stories. But yeah, the Bibliomancer and me has uh, grabbed them up. Although uh, there is that particular, well, not infamous, but definitely pinnacle of the collecting uh, set, the two volume set of his collected stories. Yes, yeah. Tartarus started out by putting out uh, all of his short stories in a two-volume collection, which, while most of his stories were out of print, uh, and as soon as that went out of print, was going on eBay for well over £1,000. Yeah, Aikman wasn't a particularly prolific writer. He wrote something like 50 short stories, or just under 50 short stories. And most people will just simply not have encountered them these days. He did edit... Uh, the Fontana books of ghost stories back in the 1970s. Oh, yeah, well, the, oh, the, right. the first few volumes of them, yes. Yes, yeah, he, uh, the first eight, I think. Yes. He included one of his stories in each one of those, so that was probably most people's introductions to Aikman's work. But you know, th those books are fantastic because not only do they have the short stories in, but they've got the introductions that he wrote, which between them amount almost to a manifesto of uh, what he believed weird fiction should be. Uh, and you know, if, if you're inspired at all by listening to this, and you can get hold of any of these old paperbacks, I mean, they quite often turn up for fifty pence each. Then not so much nowadays, though. No, mm -hmm. but but they do occasionally. I mean, I, I picked a lot of them up off Amazon, you know, last oh, okay. year, right. uh, for you know maybe a, a pound or two. Right, right. So some of them, I I spent the time and got all twenty of them in the set. Um, some of them I spent maybe five five or six quid getting. Yeah. And, and and Aikman was very, very demanding when it came to the quality of the short stories in these. I mean, certainly during his run, before Archie Edmund Hayes took over, the the stories in there, he reckoned, I, I think in his first introduction, that there were probably something like 40 great ghost stories in the English language, and he set out to try to publish those. Uh, and as as a result, yeah, they, they, they're perhaps not authors you'd, you'd ordinarily associate with horror fiction. They're not necessarily the type of story you'd associate with horror fiction. But dear God, are a lot of them unnerving. So do you think he was a successful author in his own right? I think he was, a, he was successful in that... Yeah, he was hugely influential. He won the World Fantasy Award. He won the British Fantasy Award. Um, and, you know, he was certainly respected by his peers. Financially, I don't know how he did uh, out of these things. His main vocation 
wasn't actually writing. I mean, he sort of split his time between the two. As well as being a passionate writer, he was also passionate about canals. He was a conservationist, wasn't he? Yeah, and he was actually the co-founder of the Inland Waterways Association, Mm. who were responsible for revitalising the canal structure uh, in in the UK. Uh, Until the IWA came along, all the canals that had been built for commercial purposes to haul coal up and down were just basically, you know, being left to, to ruin. And they, you know, they were uh, silted over and uh, and in you know hideous states of repair. So he headed that up. Yeah, got that going. Yes. Yeah. If, if you go on eBay and put in the um, the name Robert Aikman, you'll be able to find Know Your Waterways is one of the books that comes up and gets the most hits. Yeah, and sounds pretty chilling. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and also he, he apparently wrote you know all the internal documentation and the minutes and so on for the Inland Waterways Association, <laughs> and this this uh, centennial celebration I went along to last year had a lot of examples of that as well. Hey, tell us a little bit about that, Scott, because you didn't talk about that earlier. You were saying there was this centenary of his. Birth. Yes. But there were there were talks and well there so were two on. there were two celebrations. Unfortunately, I only managed to go to one. There, there, there was one that was uh, held um, by Jeremy Dyson, which was the one I, I didn't manage to go to. Uh, but there was one that was that's the, not the vacuum cleaner guy, is it? No, no, he's uh, <laughs> the, the the writer of the League of Gentlemen. All right, okay. Uh, no, this this other one was was held in uh, North London in an art gallery um, to tie in with an ex- exhibition they were doing called Intrusions, looking at Aikman, uh, which was you know, part of the, the celebration of the, the hundred years since his birth, and it was lots of paintings and drawings and and pen and ink pieces done by artists who'd been inspired by Aikman. But they had a, a day where they had a number of people come in and and give talks as well, and that's what I went along to. And uh, it included, you know, for example, Ray Russell of, of Tartarus Press, uh, uh, who talked about, he, g- he gave a fairly impromptu talk about uh, getting Aikman back into print. There were a number of people there who had actually been friends and colleagues of Aikman back at, uh, in his days in the Inland Waterway Association, who had some wonderful anecdotes to tell. Uh, and uh, the, um, one of the guest speakers was M. John Harrison, a uh, science fiction uh, author, um, and uh, yeah, he, he he read one of his own stories that was quite Aikman-esque. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get on to him in a little bit when we talk about looking at the gaming aspects of things, because he has some fairly interesting things to say about sort of that style of writing and things that we can learn from it. There have been a few adaptations made of Aikman's work uh, over the years, most of them for television. And the story we're talking about tonight, The Hospice, was actually filmed for television back in the 1980s for a TV series called Night Voices, uh, which actually featured four adaptations of Aikman's stories out of the the six-episode run. No one I know has ever seen this bloody thing. It's not available on DVD. It's not on YouTube. I've not managed to find it online. If any of you out there actually know any way of tracking this down, I'd love to see it because I've heard the adaptation's actually quite good. It was good. called The Hospice? Yeah, the, the episode was called The Hospice and it was part of a TV series called Night Voices made by HTV around 1984. Do you know if they did one of the inner room? Yes. Yes! Good. So that's def- definitely one of my... Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm thing much... that we can't find. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They, yeah, they did The Inner Room, they did Hand in Glove, and I can't remember what the other one was. Uh, it might have been The Trains. I really, really, really liked The Inner Room story. And now we take a look at a synopsis of The Hospice. So our story begins with a travelling businessman, I guess, called Maybury. Yes. Uh, and he finds himself lost... Somewhere in the Midlands, in England, I, I kind of get the feeling he's setting off from somewhere around Birmingham. 
Yeah, it does actually mention the West Midlands at some stage. And I was thinking more the Twilight Zone, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it does feel that way very much. Um, and yeah. it's... Maybe maybe you took a wrong turn and ended up in Milton Keynes. That would explain that so That would many explain things. so much. Well, we've done it before coming to Paul's place, uh, taking that couple of wrong turns and almost having a hospice-like moment of going down the driveway, <laughs> going, what the hell? Why did the road go? <laughs> wow. Milton Keynes, in fact, colon, yes, cause, wrong turn. Yeah, because we didn't, instead of having a, um, two eyes of a, maybe it was a cat, maybe it wasn't a cat, we can discuss that in a minute, but just this sheep that were all around us in the headlights. <laughs> God, yes. Yeah, in the fog, the all these glowing go? blue eyes. You we don't know. You are following your sat again, Scott. That road is not there it does not exist it, 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 you, you can only see it at night <laughs> you can only see it in the pitch darkness yeah in the headlights of a beaten up old mondeo <laughs> so back to the story <laughs> um yeah so maybe i mean we just get like a couple of pages of maybe kind of he seems a bit fed up that he wants to kind of drive home and get back to his wife and kid I, and but he he's... knows he knows the route he knows the way to go home but he lets himself get talked into going a different way by his colleagues yeah or does he know the way? He kind of he seems to have well, some that, idea. But... Yeah, that's the story he tells himself at least. Right. That that you know he he was heading off one way and his colleague said, "Oh no, you're heading the wrong way. This is the way everyone drives," and sent them in what is actually the opposite direction to the way he was expecting to go. And and then he after a while of kind of driving around, he finds that his petrol gauge is heading down towards empty. So he pulls over right and starts looking for for well either for petrol or somewhere to. Get dinner. Yeah, well, or possibly even stay the night. I mean, the thing to remember is that this was written in 1975. I think this is the thing, because now I would just sort of think, if I was late getting home and I wanted to get home that evening, I wouldn't be looking around for somewhere to have dinner and, you know, maybe stay the night. That just... But, but this hell? is this this is a time before mobile phones, before sat navs, when petrol stations generally closed early, unless you were you know found a big one on the motorway or something like that. Yeah. And so you know being out and lost and running out of petrol in the evening, you know, is suddenly a big thing. Yeah, yeah. So it's either in the nineteen seventies or it's set in Wales. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Apologies to any Welsh listeners. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Tony. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I'm just reminded of a former colleague who said, yeah, I don't go to Wales anymore. They don't take credit cards there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So he gets out of his car and he's kind of wandering around and he gets attacked by something. Which he believes is a cat. Bullshit, is that a cat? That really... (laughs) he (laughs) He doesn't see it. Yeah. Oh, he sees two glowing eyes and he kicks it and it doesn't make a sound. Well, I defy you to find a cat with glowing eyes that doesn't make a... Whenever you make... Uh, whenever you put a motion of foot near it. And gashes his leg. Yeah, yeah. It messes his leg up quite but he badly. But doesn't, doesn't seem to make too big a deal of it. Uh, well, he... He fixates on it all yeah. the damn time. He, he, he worries about <laughs> becoming septic and... Uh, yeah, yeah. He worries that, that it's, going to, you know, it's going to become infected as a result of dirty cat claws. Gonna lose my leg. But when he get Okay. Well, let's let's, yeah. let's move on. So he 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 looks around and he finds a sign outside a a place which is yeah. maybe like a bed and breakfast or something, and it's labelled the hospice. Yeah, and now this, I mean, the, the the use of this word is really interesting, and I I keep thinking that this is the the, the corner the cornerstone of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, the the fact that the word hospice can mean a couple of different things. And you know the the word you you know the the meaning you don't hear much anymore is that it is sort of a lodging establishment largely run by religious orders. Huh. 
okay. that puts certain bits in more perspective. Yeah, yeah. but but yeah, it, it is like a, an, an old-fashioned version of a hotel that you know it was a travelling inn that might be run by monks or something like that. Mm. Okay. And the sign reads, "Good food, some accommodation." Yes. And again, oh, there's the ambiguity there about the word accommodation, because you know, particularly ah. going into the way that he's treated in the hospice, you know, is the some accommodation that they might put him up, or is some accommodation the fact that they might cater to some of his whims? <laughs> yes, there's, more the latter, really. Yeah. <laughs> given given there's, there's a wonderful line in there of when um, it's basically jumping a little bit forward, where he's asked, yeah, something we can actually provide you with, sir, something which is in our capability to give you. Yes, something we can accommodate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so he finds his way in, and before long, he's sat down to dinner with a bunch of the other guests, in, residents, whatever they are. Inmates. inmates yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, so far as we know, he's kind of gone to a, um, a bed and breakfast or a small hotel well, and he's sat down in, in, the, in the dining room. Except even the dining room, from the word go, is described as being a bit weird. Uh, that there are these, uh, the, the, these long tables in the centre of the room uh, and, the, you know, people cute, lined up on those. And then these four tables in the corners where there's him and one other solo guest and the tables have been set up in such a way that if you sit down at them you're facing away from everyone else mm-hmm. uh, and there's the fact that the place is incredibly overheated as well that you know, you know from the time that he's going there it's sweltering heat it's only our works canteen <laughs> it's been really hot over the last few days but in your works canteen are some of the guests fettered by their ankle to a bar that runs along the floor I could tell you but then I'd have to kill you <laughs> yeah maybe so so he he served yeah so he served food on these plates which he describes as kind of being like a child or a baby's plate a nursery, but they're kind yeah. of oversized with the hospice written round the rim yes and he's given these. He describes these massive portions of food, like well, yeah, massive that, slabs of turkey that are piled up on his well, plate. I mean, first of all, it's this really thick, hearty soup that he served in this huge bowl. And you know, by the time he's got through most of the soup, he's full. And and he's admonished for not finishing his his food yeah. by the staff. Yeah, when it gets around to the main course, and yeah, like you say, it's this big serving of turkey and and roast vegetables and stuff like that and gravy, and he sits there and sort of picks at it, being filled up with the soup, and just can't finishes it, finish it, and the, what is it? The waiter comes over and basically throws a fit about it. She picks up the plate, oh, wait, and slams yeah, it down on the, on the floor, smashes it, yeah, and just yeah. That's one of the other things I found about the um, the staff, or as I looked at her nurse Ratchet. Um, <laughs> that they always approach from behind and there's just this looming yeah. presence that they're almost whispering in his ear, would you like anything else, sir? But they're almost <laughs> treating him childlike, so, oh, it's turkey tonight? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was... I just like to think the idea of someone coming up behind you like that and always being somewhat invisible by mm. even the angles of the... Um, where they'd set the tables up so that you couldn't see the people coming in and out of the room either. That that's unnerving. Just suddenly having this um, matronly nurse ratchet figure coming up behind you and suddenly you know, more food for you. Yes. Yeah, we're already mm. in the sort of territory of what the hell? What what is going on here? And so then he decides that you know I've had enough of this. I'm just going to go out into the lobby and get a coffee. Can I get a coffee? Yeah. No. <laughs> you can, but it's just a really <laughs> tiny one. In contrast to these massive plates of food, he kind of gets this unsatisfactory little cup of coffee. And then one of the other guests comes to talk to him, this lady. Yeah, in a very expensive silk dress. 
Yeah. You know, this middle-aged woman. Um, Who starts coming on to him. It invites him to touch the dress. Yes. Yeah. And when, he's a, little, her, yes. when he's a little reluctant, she grabs his hand and places it on her breast. Yes. And, you know, gives him her room number and invites him to come and see her later. Uh, and Maybury is, you know, it's not stated explicitly, but it's obviously mortified by this. I mean, you know, he's trying to get home to his wife. He's a married man. He's obviously quite a faithful one. And, you know, just really doesn't know what to do about this. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't kind of warm to that at all, does no, he? Though he, is, he does shocked. appear to be attracted to her, but yeah, yeah he's almost repulsed by this, um, by the forwardness. Yeah, maybe he then goes to the the owner of well, the owner of the hospice, the, uh, well, the maitre the, d'. He's the manager. I mean, he's come. The manager has already come round and spoken to him while he was eating, and he was the it was the manager who'd led him through to the lounge for the coffee. And he seems the most amenable one, Falconer, yes. the, the the manager. Yes. And so, so Maybury says to Falconer that, you know, he's run out of petrol. I want to get home tonight. Is there somewhere I can get some petrol? Well, first of all, he says, oh, can I phone my wife? And it's sort of, no, we don't have telephones here. <laughs> so, oh, why, why don't we have telephones? Because the, the ringing of the bells upsets people. Mm. Yeah, we, do, we, don't, we don't want you know, that kind of intrusion on their lives. Yeah, we have an internal line and that's it. Yeah, I mean, that's just one of those moments during the story where it's, what the fuck is really going on here? Really? <laughs> Falconer, the manager, then offers uh, the, the potential of being able to siphon some petrol out of a vehicle. Yeah, you, know, you could siphon some out of our van. And then he kind of clicks, oh, no, hold on. Well, he doesn't click immediately. They go outside and actually try to start the car, first of yes. all. Yes. And that's when Maybury sits down behind the car and then can't work out how to use the starter on it, can't work out how uh, to start his, uh, own, how to car. Start his own car. Mm-hmm. Which, which reminds me of dreams that I've had of driving and not being able to open my eyes. <laughs> I'm driving along and my eyes are shut and suddenly I realise that I've got my hands on the wheel and the vehicle's moving and I cannot, you know, physically make myself open my eyes and I panic. Are, are you sure you were dreaming? Uh, well, you know, let's not get into details. I've, I've done that going down the M1 and thank God there's such a thing as a rumble strip. <laughs> <laughs> but no, there's also calling out the man mountain as well. Um, the what? The, oh, the, the, the yeah. manservant, the one. Oh, the yeah. We have this person that can fix all ma- manner of mechanical problems, and out comes the beast. <laughs> so he, he tries to get Maybury's car going, doesn't I, he? But they, I think they, that, that's, that, that's, that, well, that's the point at which they realise that they don't have any petrol, they've just got diesel. So that's not going to work. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. you better come back inside. Yes. Tell you what, stay for the night and lodge with uh, Mr. Holland. Who Bannard, sorry, Mr. Bannard. Who doesn't have pyjamas in your size. <laughs> so all the residents, or whatever we want to call them, guests or residents, they sleep two to a room. So he's assigned Mr. Bannard, uh, an elderly gentleman, um, who, with, with whom to, to lodge for that night. They all sleep two to a room. And Mr. Bannard is very anxious that they walk about in their stocking feet and don't disturb the other guests. No noise. Yeah, and, and Mr. Bannard, you know, tries very hard to make Maybury welcome. Yeah, um, almost, uh, I think, with a degree of over familiarity. Yeah, yeah. he's going to lend him his pajamas for a start. Which, yeah, is again, you know, a slightly creepy thing. Yeah, and the way he kind of does it is a bit creepy. Yeah. yeah, but but yes, it is this this almost feeling. Yeah, you know, and and this is something we might come back to later. The fact that maybe they have known each other for you know longer than Maybury realizes. Yeah. And there's the thing about the windows. Yeah, yes, that there aren't any windows. <laughs> just curtains on the wall. When yeah. he pulls them back, it's just wall? Yeah. 
Which... Well, it makes a good piece of decoration, I thought. Is that when they start to have a conversation then? No, it's when um, Holland goes out of the room. Or at least, does he go out of the room? Does well, he go out Banner, of the room? Uh, yeah. um, our protagonist, Maybury, is laying in his bed, isn't he? Trying mm-hmm. to get to sleep. Or maybe he's got to sleep and he hears Bannard going, well... Yeah, in the dark. Moving. Yeah, he hears him going out. Yeah. yeah. At that point, my favourite moment in the whole story, just the rest of the rooms on that floor just screams echoing throughout the building. Like, mur- like yeah, murder is going on or something. Yes. Yeah. Or something. Because I, I kind of thought at that point, oh... There's only one other guest that we really know about here. That's the woman that who had invited think, him to her room. I think it room. is described as a woman's scream, isn't it, in the story? That I was thought, how I took it, and I thought, I thought, yeah. oh, it's her, the I woman just, that tried to seduce him. But I, no, no reason for that. I just pictured it was just these, all these people in all these different rooms, lying in bed and just suddenly screaming at the same time. Oh no, yeah. I thought it was one person screaming. I, yeah, I'm not sure which it is now. I like, I like your interpretation, Matt, and it, yeah. I was reading it while I was falling asleep because admittedly up until that point there wasn't much that grabbed me but then that point was the bit where I sat up and went oh this is suddenly getting good so maybe he goes to the door and he's going to go out and investigate and he can't open the door yes can't work is out it locked to use a car. or is it like his car he can't you know make it work yes and then apparently he sees a crack of light around the door and and Bannard's back again smelling of the woman's perfume yeah. but is it Bannard somehow different yeah, different hair, different appearance. No, it's not him. That's how I read it anyway. Yeah, or, or at least yeah, you know, maybe he isn't quite sure. He is you know he's looking at Bannard and looking at the sort of fringe of red hair that he's got around his balding pate, and it's just sort of well, he might have looked like that before, but I'm I'm not really sure. Now there's the there's the preceding couple of paragraphs where he details that oh one of the problems I've always had for a while is I could never really distinguish one man from another yes that makes me think that's a um, that's that's a setup to say no he's not this is an unreliable piece of narration he is not seeing the same person yeah I think we're getting quite a lot of unreliable narration here. oh I mean the whole thing is an exercise in unreliable narration mm-hmm. so then he has this really uncomfortable conversation with Bannard as well where Bannard is kind of he's sitting on um, Maybury's bed, mm. kind of too close to him for his comfort. Reeking of this woman's perfume. And he starts asking Maybury about you know, kind of intimate questions about his wife and yeah. uh, how he feels about his son, and, and it's just, just all wrong, really. I think that's the way that um, Scott described it. There's just this growing and increasing sense of wrong all the way through. Oh, yes. So how do we get through to the morning then? Does he just go back to sleep? I think think he goes back to sleep, kind of a fitful sleep. And then, so he wakes up in the morning and he wants to to leave. Yeah, the the manager tells him there was a bit of unpleasantness in the night and someone died. Um, He he sees other people that have also got that slightly changed appearance about them, doesn't he? Yes. Um, but you know, because someone died, they've called for the funeral director to come along, and this this hearse uh, has come. But Falkner says what he says is, my immediate task is to dispose of the body while the guests are preoccupied to spare them all knowledge, all pain. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> so some so guys creepy. just died here, but we've got to get the body out and dispose of it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, considering that. You know, they, they they then you know get Mabry out, usher him outside, uh, and then get him into the hearse. Because this, this we can offer you a lift in the yeah, hearse. That's right. I mean, yeah. Does that mean that the person who died is Mabry? Exactly. Because he ride and there's no space for him to ride up the front. He has yeah. to ride in the back with, with the, the coffin. Body. Yeah, yeah. 
Oh, oh, yeah, with we, the we, oh yeah, we don't see the body. He's, he's got yeah, he's got to travel out there with the coffin. Yeah, you see, at that point, yeah. this is this is one of the things I found was again a little bit one of the on the surface. I thought this was a very anticlimactic and very sudden, abrupt and boring ending. Just that he gets in the he gets in the hearse and he's he drives away. The end. Yeah, it's the last line that makes me think. Oh, hang on a minute, that ain't good. Because yeah. they let him out at a bus stop. Well, it's not even they let him out. It just says, we, we, we will drop you at the bus stop. You yeah. won't have to wait very long. And that's what made me... Ah, yeah. okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as, as you said, yeah, the whole thing is this kind of creepy, growing sense of something being horribly wrong. And for me, it works on all sorts of different levels all the way through. I mean, part of it... Th this is one of the most English stories I have ever read. Because a lot of it is this very sort of English comedy of manners, almost that you know, you, you turn up somewhere that has obviously got a set of rules uh, that people are expected to behave in a certain way. You don't know what they are. No one will tell you, and you're just trying to you know, find your way through without causing offence. And pray you've got a gun. <laughs> God forbid appetite. you should actually ask yeah. what the rules are. You just sit down and try and fit in because it's your deficiency that you don't know what they are, even though you've not been told. How much more English can you get than that? Exactly. And as John Cleese said, an Englishman's greatest ambition in life is to get from birth to, to death without being embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> and that is, the, that is Maybury through and through, really. It, it is, yeah. It, it, the, the things that he puts up with, the things that he just accepts during the course of this, uh, in, in the interest of just not making a fuss... Uh, yeah, he he can't phone home. He can't phone home to his wife. He's getting more and more anxious about the fact that his wife is going to be worrying about him uh, and the fact that he hasn't come home. Um, but in the end, you know, he doesn't make that much of a fuss about it. All, all his anguish is internal. Yeah, he just keeps on barging on the reader. I'm so irritated. I'm so irritated. Fuck off. I can't stand you putting more irritated in. <laughs> but, but, that's, but that's the point. I mean, you know, he's winding himself up more and more inside, but he is trying not to let any of this out. Yeah, well, that's what I meant earlier when I said yeah. about he didn't seem to make that big deal about the cat scratch. He does yeah. he does kind of worry about it in his head, but he doesn't go to the manager of the place and say, look, I've been, I've been injured. Can I have it treated? He doesn't address these things outwardly. He just worries about them on the inside. Yes. Um, Which, again, is thoroughly English. Absolutely, sir. Now, I, as I was reading this, I found it, Unlike you, I think, then, Matt, I, I found it really compelling because I thought, you know, I'll probably read this over a couple of evenings. And I started reading it. And I found I was just drawn into it. And as I went along, I was kind of thinking, this guy, I'm interpreting this, that he's in an old people's home, mm. in a retirement home. And we're seeing a guy who has got, you know, some kind of dementia and he's forgotten why he that he's actually a patient there. All this stuff about him driving there, you know, that's just... That's just in his mind, I, and, and yeah, and I, his wife and child. You know, maybe maybe his wife died years ago, and his child's probably you know almost a pensioner now himself. And you know, these big piles of food that he's giving, being given. You know, a lot of elderly people often lose their appetite because they're not getting much exercise and so on. So yeah. it seems like massive piles of food, and he's being treated like a child, which yes. again, you know, is is kind of fits in with that. I, and, you know, the, the, the dementia aspect of it certainly you know, fitted perfectly with me because uh, my, my mother uh, has Alzheimer's. And when I first read this story, she was in the fairly early stages of it. And I saw a number of the, uh, the kind of things that, that her mind did at the time when she'd forget stuff. 
her mind would make up details wholesale from her imagination to fill in the gaps in her memory. Uh, and she, you know, uh, she, she would recount conversations that she'd had with people who were obviously uh, weren't around. Uh, she'd assume that if she was going to walk through, you know, a doorway in a particular room, that she'd end up in a room in her house, even though she was actually in a, a dementia unit. Um, she'd uh, in, invent these these whole elaborate uh, bits of backstory to things uh, and where she was and and what was going on around her, which were just complete fantasy. I mean, that's a, yeah, that that is very much what's happening in this story. The the thing I took from it is I I started off when it mentioned about um, that he arrived at the hospice. I maybe partly had the idea that maybe the guy was already dead at the beginning of the story. Maybe that he's had um, that he's driving or is trying to find his way towards the afterlife, and that this is that he's got lost on the way, and that he's stuck in this effectively purgatory, and mm. mm. that they are being tormented. That this is some this is a form of torture because the the, fact, yeah. the image of particularly of them being chained up at the dinner table was the thing that um, got mm. me. Yeah, but again, yeah, it's, it's sort of that's again struck me as being you know perhaps an extreme way that some people might cope with some people with dementia uh in that there, there's this uh, syndrome that goes along with alzheimer's we are called sundowning uh which is uh in the evening um you know when it gets around you know particularly to sunset uh, a lot of people who've got alzheimer's just you know something you know triggers in their brain and they just go wandering that's the point at which they will start wandering and this is the evening you're not before. confusing if lycanthropy scott no 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 it's an easy mistake to make okay that might explain what bit uh, what scratched him though <laughs> it was the werewolf <laughs> a werewolf with, with alzheimer's yes <laughs> Can't remember that it's a werewolf. Just I was going to say that would be bad, but I mean, either one is fairly bad. <laughs> yeah, I, I, on the I, scale of. Personally, I'd take lycanthropy. Yeah, <laughs> I'd say there were various parts that just didn't really grab my interest, um, but it was finally that moment when everyone bedded down that then just this sc- these screams erupted throughout the house. That was a bit that really made me suddenly perk up and pay a bit more attention. <laughs> Much like Maybury, yes, you were, you were kind yeah. of suddenly brought to wakefulness. Yeah, yeah, I. Because no. on, on first reading, I found that that ending, I was really disappointed because I felt that we'd been given all this build-up and then no ending. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not saying I wanted an explanation, but I just felt that it was a very weak kind of a very weak conclusion. And then reading a little bit about it, I kind of reflected on the fact that, or I had it pointed out to me, it's a hearse. Yeah. Oh yeah. And then suddenly it kind of, you know that that. That seemed to mean a lot more, and actually, I went back and reread some of it, including the ending. And I was like, "Oh yeah, that does kind of work a lot better." Yeah, and no, I, I found it incredibly unsettling. I agree that you know, the, the, when I first read it, I got to that ending, and I thought, "Well, I, I, I was expecting a bit more of a payoff." And then, yeah, you know, I went back and just reread the last couple of pages, and um, yeah, the, the the more I thought about it, the more it just really unnerved me. And th- I mean, this is the thing. I do not get scared at horror stories. I don't get scared at horror films. Uh, and, you know, it, I'm, I'm not saying the hospice scared me, but what Aikman can do, which, you know, no horror writer I can think of off the top of my head can do, is really undermine my sense of what's real, uh, give me that feeling that, you know, I am having a nightmare. That there's all these bits, well, maybe not even a nightmare, more like a fever dream. The fact there's all these bits which feel like they do make sense, or at least they would make sense if my brain could just work in the right way. 
And or maybe the wrong way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a very dreamlike feel to it. Without without kind of losing all sense of what's going on, there's a kind of a, a dreamlike kind of uh, feel to the reality of it, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, there's... You can get similar effects, as I mentioned before, by reading some you know, surrealist automatic writings or uh, cut-ups and stuff like that. But they're very different experiences because they play tricks with narrative and uh, you know, they're deliberately nonsense and so on. This isn't. This is something quite different and you know, quite unique. And now we take a look at some ideas that we can take from the hospice to influence our gaming. OK, we've, we've talked about the story, we've talked about the content and our opinions and reactions to it. How can we deconstruct what we've read in the story and apply that into a gaming context? I think as a, you know, if you're looking at this from a keeper's point of view, then you know, the, the lesson there is that it's okay to be an unreliable narrator as a keeper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that you, 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 you can play around with characters' perceptions, that maybe they're dreaming, maybe they're drugged, maybe there's something happening with the reality that's making it difficult to perceive, maybe they're insane... But whatever it is, they're not perceiving things quite right. But you should always portray it as being absolutely real, even if the bits, individual bits don't quite fit together. But the, the question that occurs to me is, as a reader, we're reading the story and we're kind of seeing the, the show, if you like. We're seeing the film on the screen. We're seeing the, the story. Now, when I'm watching a film, I'm totally convinced that, you know, they're flying through the air and, you know, they're, they're doing kung fu or whatever. In reality, it's all special effects, right? There's lots of special effects. And the people who did the special effects and directed the film know what's going on. Does Aikman know what's going on as the author of it? I think he does. I think... He's just not going to tell anyone. Yeah, I, I, my my impression, and yeah, I, I don't know. I've never read anything by Eggman where he discussed his writing process, but my theory is that yes, he knew exactly what was going on here, uh, but realised that explaining it in explicit terms would just undermine the atmosphere that you know he was creating, uh, and that by playing these games with perceptions and leaving things, you know, plot threads dangling and um, you know not not showing how the trick is done means that the whole thing just ends up that much more nightmarish. Because going back to that um, quote by Neil Gaiman that you mentioned earlier about it's watching like watching a magician's trick, if you've ever had a magician, if you've ever watched a magician do a trick and been really impressed with it and thought, wow, that's amazing, and then you find out how it's done, yeah. you think, oh, was that it? Yes. It's, yeah. It well, really it, it displaced his, the whole it, thing. It was up his sleeve the whole time. Yeah. yeah, oh, it's just a false thing that you do that with, and oh, oh, I can see it now. Yeah. It's like that moment in The Prestige. But what about the other birdie? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so so when, if, if we transfer that into gaming, uh, the, the, the perception of a player can be, this is all really strange and incomprehensible and disturbing and weird, and I don't know what's going on in a good way. Does the keeper need to know what's going on, or can they just be throwing out weirdness? Can I, that work? I, I, I think you know, both have got their merits, but the latter is, I think, you know, A, harder to pull off, and B, potentially a lot less satisfying. 
that you know, you as a keeper probably should have you know some idea of where the pieces fit together, even if you never actually reveal it to the players. I, I'm reminded, you know, I, I mentioned this uh, this talk that I went to last year, where M. John Harrison was one of the speakers, and one of the things that he talked about, which I think really applies to this, was a, a technique that he developed uh, in the fairly early days of his, you know of fiction writing or his own fiction writing. Uh, which was, he said he, he started it out with a short story that he wrote called The Ice Monkey. And The Ice Monkey is potentially a fairly straightforward horror story. Um, a, a, a sort of story of supernatural revenge. Uh, but what he did with it, you know, he explained this during the talk, was that he wrote this fairly straight horror story, and then he went through and systematically removed everything from the story that explained what was going on, except for a couple of little hints. So you got to see the effects, you got to see the aftermath, you got to see the characters' reactions, but there was nothing explained in it. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I mean, having read that story... I imagine that if all those bits were left in, it would be thoroughly mediocre. What's left is really unnerving. So is part of the enjoyment of reading that it is kind of interpreting it yourself and maybe, you know, you see different things in it and, and you know, you're partly, a bit yeah. unsure of what's going on. And I, I think it's partly of... that. But, I mean, a lot of it goes back to that Lovecraft quote about, you know, the, the, the oldest and greatest fear of mankind being the fear of the unknown. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah, I, th this is something that I think... Is a very, very difficult thing to do in gaming. And it's one of the things that, you know, perhaps frustrates me sometimes a little bit in Call of Cthulhu games, but I'm, I'm not quite sure what the solution is. That, you know, we uh, as players want to try to rationalise everything. We want to, you know, we, we, you know, as part of solving the scenario, we want to try to, you know, work out what all the secrets are. We want to see where all the bits fit together. We want to make it safe. <laughs> And uh, this, I think, is the antithesis of what you know, Lovecraftian horror should be. That you know, you're talking about the mythos. The mythos is supposed to be a inhuman, alien, ineffable. Uh, and if in the end you're getting down to, you know, well, it all happened because you know uh, such and such, and it's a simple explanation. It might as well be fucking Scooby Doo. But it's the protagonist's role to try to figure out what's going on but, as a player. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. But I think what a lot of uh, Call of Cthulhu scenarios perhaps make the mistake of doing is allowing them to do that you know i think for me i i, I agree i agree to some degree i think i think perhaps the fault is in the scenario writing to try to give a very human explanation yeah. to what these unknowable entities are doing so we all always have kind of well what does this god or nalathotep or whatever want to do this time and you know if we're really talking about that, it's probably completely unknowable. We can kind of see, I think, rather than knowing, you know, the root cause of of it, all we see are the symptoms, really, that, that, that sometimes those things are going to be bizarre and inexplicable, but the reason they're happening is because the, these entities have decided to do it. Yeah, it's, it's just a function of what they are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. There's one scenario I can think of that does leave that um, almost the well, no, the player reaction in me was what the what the hell when I played it. The GM is presented with I think two or three pages of little random encounters that all are sanity blasting, all weird, random, and unexplained incidents that you just continually bombard the players with. Yeah, I mean I think that continual bombardment with weirdness can just be a bit wearing. 
on, as, as a player sometimes. Well, it was eroding in their sanity. I think that was the point of it. No, but, but yeah, it is, I, I think yeah, the point is that if you just feel like you're encountering random stuff, it's never going to cohere in any way, mm. then you know, is that going to be satisfying so as a player? Yeah, absolutely. Going back to the hospice, it's not just random stuff that's happening. He's not going through and meeting an ostrich on a... You know, on a, on a, in a bowl of trifle, and then you know he's on top of Mount Everest, and then he's in a spaceship. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's, it's all it's, thematic. It's all set on a location. It's all character driven. It all feels like it's almost real, but it's just kind of one step to the side. Yeah, and that's what I find unnerving. It could almost be right, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I was just thinking, for example. Without giving too many spoilers, there's a scenario I wrote a little while back, which I, I think you've both played, where there is a lot of weird stuff going on. There's a lot of kind of playing around with reality and so on. And every time I've run it, you know, people sit down, or there's at least one person who systematically decides they're going to sit down and learn what the rules are of this. You mean uh, they're going to draw a map? Yeah, it, well, it's not even drawing a map, but it's sort of things are behaving differently here, so we've got to almost scientifically work out what they are. So I've actually ended up putting it in the scenario notes. If people do this, just change the rules on them. You know, next time they do it, it's all different. That's great, though. That'd yeah. be, that's, isn't that just what you want? Someone to sit down and try and figure it all out? Yeah, yes, yeah. I love but, it when that happens. But, but, uh, I, Give them a puzzle. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. But personally, I, I think that there is no surer way of killing horror in a game than that. It's sort of, yeah, we've worked out what's going on. It's all safe now. Nothing to be scared of. Oh, no, not if they actually solve it, obviously. No, no, but... it's not even that. But it's, you know, it, it, as soon as you kind of work out what the safe rules of the situation are, then it diffuses the oh, horror of the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's how can we make There shouldn't this really be any safe rules, though, should there? No, that, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah cool. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. There's and a cat the, at the door. And the cat tries to get in at this moment. Yes. <laughs> Should we let the cat in? Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's time for your guest spot. Come on, in or out? Are you in the cave or out of the cave? <laughs> <laughs> One of the other really nice aspects of the story that I could take out and I can probably loot wholesale for when I run uh, scenarios with, uh, particularly NPCs that aren't, really bad guys, but just are complete dicks. <laughs> some some of the lines that they come out with in the story, one moment in particular that stands out is where Faulkner asks, would you like anything that we can possibly provide you with, sir? Um, that he labours over um, over the words and very accentuates every key, um, key word in there. And then, oh, I'm really sorry, sir. Unfortunately, of course, in my forgetfulness, I mistook diesel for petrol. Ha, 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 how silly of me. Yes. Hey, you dick, I want to punch your face in right now. <laughs> no, this is, this is something I do a lot, uh, that... I very rarely put a reasonable, helpful NPC in a game. Uh, I, I like NPCs who are kind of broken in some respect, or you know, irrational, or you know, it will will just make the PCs' lives difficult in in different ways without you know, overt hostility. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so they're not an enemy to be fought directly. Yes, they're they're just kind of a bit creepy and disturbing and unhelpful. Yeah. Or, yeah. 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 I mean, you know, even if you're just going along to someone, you know, doing an info dump or whatever, you know, give them mannerisms or whatever. You know, uh, there was, you know, for example, one uh, uh, cult game I ran some time back, and I remember, you know, some that. Um, a couple of the characters decided that they were going to interview some NPC who I'd made up on the spot uh, and wanted to get some, you know, an info dump out of him. So I, I, I just 
you know, described them you know, as going around to his place and that he was just eating kind of cold Chinese takeaway while talking to them out of the fridge that it was obviously, you know, had been sitting there for some time and, you know, was just, uh, it was obviously on the turn and, you know, the rice was crunching a bit and it all smelt a bit wrong. And I was just describing all this and they they were so fixated on the Chinese takeaway and everything else, they almost paid no attention to what was going on in the, the info dump. Yeah, I think you're likely yeah. to get a much greater sense of kind of unease and... Concern and confusion and worry from the players about that kind of thing than you are of trying to describe a formless spawn or yes. um, you know some big monster comes out because it's relatable. Yeah, we, we can kind of feel like we know where we are and then suddenly oh hold on what he's doing what no that's not right <laughs> I don't like this. Yeah, I, I just remember yeah it, it was it was a convention game and I. Yeah, it was a, someone I don't think I've played with before or since. But I just remember him him sitting there as I was describing this NPC every now and then during the questions, just losing track of the questions and just sitting there watching me with eyes going wider and wider. And, you know, the more he did that, of course, the more I played it up and the more disgusting <laughs> I made it. <laughs> I remember that again from a cult game of having someone um, running their hands down a wall um, with razor blades on it in purgatory. So, of course, they were tearing themselves to pieces, but they found it, and the word I used was orgasmic, um, <laughs> of which, yeah, just the look of horror on one of the poor players' face. <laughs> I wonder if I've never seen her at my game table since. <laughs> Obviously, these tips aren't too good if you want the players to come back. But, uh, the <laughs> yeah. ones that come back, they're the ones you're going to want to play with. Yeah, if you don't care about alienating people, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And if you liked Robert Aikman, you may like some of these. There are a number of writers I can think of, or yeah, a number of stories that certainly cover similar ground. Um, the the writer I can think of, the living writer, who maybe you know, it, it, it doesn't exactly ape Aikman's style, but um, covers that that similar ground of you know almost dreamlike uh, you know marginal unreality uh, is Jonathan Carroll. Uh, Jonathan Carroll, I think, is one of the great overlooked writers of our time. He's so he's Amer still around? Yeah, he's an, okay. he's an American writer, lives in Vienna. He's written a number of novels. Uh, again, you know, won a number of awards, but never quite made the bestseller lists. And his stuff is just phenomenal. And again, I mean, it's, it, it doesn't have that, that very British aspect of, you know, that, that almost comedy of manners aspect that some of Aikman's work has. Uh, but it does have that that sort of shifting sense of reality and that that stuff that you know, almost makes sense but doesn't quite. R Ramsey Campbell, I think, was probably quite influenced by Aikman. I mean, the, the, the two of them knew each other. Uh, and uh, oh, you, you, Campbell is a very different writer from Aikman. Uh, but... I, I think you know that what we were talking about with uh, NPCs uh, and unreasonable characters, or at least you know um, interactions with between characters which just feel wrong. I think Ramsey Campbell is the master of that. Um, the the the, um, the interactions between his protagonists and the supporting characters are the kinds of things that will unnerve and infuriate you. <laughs> uh, his his world seems to be full of irrational, horrible people. Sounds just like the world, really. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, it's like the world, only more so. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and, of course, the other writer I'd recommend along these lines is one we've mentioned already, which is M. John Harrison. Uh, particularly his short stories, if you if you find some of those, then they they yeah you know, again they they don't 
ape Aikman in any way, but it's that similar sort of not-quite-reality. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. For those backers who pledge $5 per episode, we are promised to sing their name in thanks. So here goes Frank Delventhal. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That concludes our discussion of Robert Aikman's The Hospice. So what did we think of it? Uh, not as good as The Inner Room. Um, I've read others of his stories which I much preferred, but then I think The other, um, the Inner Room catered more my kind of weirdness rather than um, rather than that presented in um, The Hospice. Yeah, I've not, was... not read The Inner Room. I've read one or two others, and I'd say this is probably the best one of his that I've read. I, I... The, the, uh, the Ed Room is, is another one of my favourites. Um, I Personally, I find you know the, the Hospice probably more unnerving than any other short story I've oh, ever yeah, read. It's, it's unnerving. Um, the thing I think that got me with The Inner Room is that it's more of a ghost story, which is... Um, or cl- it, it could be a ghost story, we don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't call it a ghost story. It's just weird. Yeah, so It's more my form of weirdness. I, I didn't dislike The Hospice, I just didn't find it as enjoyable. Yeah, there's less overt breaks with reality in in the hospice than mm-hmm. there are in the inner room. The inner room is is a very different beast. Yeah. It, it's got a lot more of a human face. Maybe well, why I dislike well, the it. hospice. Yes, yeah. the hospice. So there's more of a human face. So probably yeah. why I dislike it. <laughs> and I think that's why I found it so unnerving. Well, I found it unnerving, you know, as well because it, you know, it, it stirred up a lot of things for me. As you know, as I mentioned, my mother has dementia, and this you know really hit a lot of the beats there. So that's it for tonight. It's goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello. Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.